Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. My guest this week is a cardiologist, clinician, acclaimed author and health campaigner who I can say has literally helped me on a health journey that I think has added years to my life. Dr. Asim Mulhotra is the author of The Piopi Diet, which advocates the use of what we would probably call a Mediterranean-style diet. That's lots more olive oil and nuts and a severe reduction of carbohydrates and processed food. We obviously have a lot to talk about, particularly when it comes to food. But I also wanted to talk to him about his personal routines, what he does for exercise and to optimise his heart health. I hope you find the conversation as interesting as I did, and you can probably tell by the end of it we had a lot more to say. This episode was recorded during lockdown, so audio might not be as perfect as we'd like. Asim, thank you so much for giving me your time today. I know how busy you are because I've tried to get hold of you in the past. And I know a lot of people detain you because you're an expert, not just in cardiology and medicine, but you actually know about nutrition and health and you've written books and you've helped me change my life. What I'd really like to know about is you a little bit more. First of all, tell me about your lockdown, how you're coping with it. Tom, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this chat with you as always. Um, I think, to be honest... um, pretty much like everybody else, trying to make the best of quite a difficult situation. And keeping that in mind in the sense that I also know there are many people, many, many people who are in much more difficult and challenging positions than I am. But, you know, certainly for me, I live on my own. And in some ways, that's a good thing in the sense that, you know, spending a lot of time on my own is not that unusual for me. But on the other side, You know, I miss all the social interaction and social engagement of going out and meeting friends or whether it's going out on a Friday night to Soho, Mm -hmm. um, going to cinema, going to the gym. You know, these are the things that I really kind of realized when lockdown happened, just going to that space of the gym and just having a workout for an hour, an hour and a half. So it has been quite tough from that perspective. I think that's more of a mental thing than anything else. But despite all of that, you know, making the best of it, you know, during this period, Tom, I wrote one book, I'm just finishing a second book. 
I've done quite a lot of academic papers, a lot of it related really to COVID and, and explaining the worst outcomes from it. So I've just tried to be as productive as I can, but also using those tools that I have written about and learnt about over the years to try and keep me, you know, physically and as mentally well as possible. So are you doing home workouts and finding time to sort of reflect or meditate? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. You know, my routine normally is I'd usually be in the gym probably four to five times a week, you know, doing a bit of resistance training, combining that with a bit of bike cardio and stuff like that. So when the first lockdown happened, I ordered myself a pull-up bar and just a 12 kilogram kettlebell. So those, those things actually have helped. Absolutely. Yeah. I know you have written the Piopi diet, which I <laughs> draw down on regularly. How are you preparing food and what are you, you know, what's, what's your daily food intake look like? So it's interesting. I, I've, uh, I'm a big sort of foodie in the very broad sense of the meaning of the word uh, because I grew up in a household where both my parents cooked. Interestingly, my dad was, you know, enjoyed cooking more than my mum. I mean, he actually really enjoyed cooking and he taught me to cook when I was 16. And then I've been cooking actually pretty much most days of the week, I would say, for the re- since I left home, since I went to university. So for me, you know, that's another source of pleasure. It's a source of meditation, if you like. You know, I'll, I'll stick on whatever usually my routine is. I'll stick on Magic FM and, uh, yeah. and you know, while I'm doing my cooking. And um, besides breakfast, which will usually be a mixture of either eggs and some fruit or, you know, porridge, what I cook is a mixture of Mediterranean cuisine and Indian food. Yeah. Relatively low carb, of course. But yeah, yeah. I like cooking a variety of different things. I'm going to keep going on this because in the Piopi diet, of course, one of the things in there is don't forget to get your good fats through nuts, right? I mean, I never had nuts. I never, uh, unless I had peanuts in the pub when I was, you know, totally out of control. I never had nuts until I read your book, really. And I find it quite hard to sort. I, you, you know, you could buy a bag of walnuts and they taste terrible. I can't be the only person who's read the Piopi diet who, who finds that a little bit difficult. Where do you get your nuts from? <laughs> for me, I think I find it easiest by going for that grounded stuff as a powder kind of mix nuts. That, that's probably the easiest way for me to, yeah. to enjoy nuts as well. I get from Whole Foods, I get this pack of mixed nuts kind of thing. And I just added two tablespoons of that into my, um, my porridge oats in the morning, actually. It's, porridge, right. it's much more palatable, so that might be a better way of people to enjoy the nuts. Throw them in there, okay. But, you know, I suppose just trying to find the ones you enjoy the most. Yeah. When you look at all of the sort of nutrition study data, nuts seem to be one of the best sources of, or certainly uh, have the strongest impact in terms of heart health, in terms of what a food you can eat. Yeah. So that's why I think it's important. In the conversations I've had with you, I wouldn't be mischaracterising where I say you, you've come to the conclusion that actually a more important component of good health is to find strategies for wellness uh, through, through well-being practice. I know that after 20 years in Parliament, having been triggered five times a day, I've had cortisol shooting through my veins, and that doesn't happen anymore. And I've tried to do, dare I call it, sort of structured meditation, which I, I have good days and bad days at. How do you do that, Bib? Can you tell me a little bit about your programme? I think you've hit a really important point there. So when you look at um, data on communities that have good lifespan and you try and work out what are the most important components of not just health but happiness, it all comes down to ultimately stress. And in fact, one of the best mitigators of stress is having meaningful, healthy relationships. 
So obviously that has become difficult, more difficult certainly for many people during lockdown. So what's the next best thing you can do? And again, when you look at heart disease data, when you look at some of the data that you know, I'm writing about at the moment around can people actually reverse heart disease? Can you actually reverse the blockages in the arteries or stop them progressing? One of the biggest factors, if not the biggest, is reducing stress through meditation. And uh, what I personally do, again, and, and I have to be proactive about it, so I actually have a, a downloaded an app called Calm, as in C-A-L-M. Yeah. You know, the natural tendency for cortisol is it rises early in the morning when you wake up. Interestingly, there is a, a higher prevalence of heart attacks in the early morning. So early morning is when your cortisol levels rises and when it's highest. So that, in a way, is probably a good time to do the meditation. So I do about 20 minutes literally as soon as my eyes open. I don't look at my, you know, social media or anything like that. I will go straight to my calm map, I'll turn it on, and I'll do deep breathing for 20 minutes. And then I'll, you know, get out of bed and, you know, go and have my coffee. And then I'll probably repeat it in the afternoon for another 20 minutes if I can. So you wake up, you're sort of in half sleep, you wake me up on in bed, and so the day will slowly emerge for you, and then you get out of yeah, bed. Yeah, uh, and when I do it, Tom, it's interesting. I mean, you have to you know, keep it quite regular, but it does make a difference. Yeah. You don't wake up feeling super anxious or stressed, which, interestingly, yeah. that can actually all be triggered by you know, going onto your social media straight away. Yeah. So I actually try, if I can, to sort of be proactive and not turn on any social media or look at my phone or anything for at least half an hour after waking up. That's a clever idea. And I think if people should try doing that, they'll notice a big difference because yeah. you can start the day off drained and you don't really want that. <laughs> There was a point where the first thing I would do in the morning would be to throw my left arm out of bed to feel for my phone so that I could look at the daily media brief. I mean, I look at it that I mean, what a crazy life that was. But I, I still fail on, you know, looking at the phone too early. But uh, these days it's definitely not Labour Party media brief time. <laughs> and then you do that twice a day. What about if you're under pressure, you're feeling a bit of anxiety? Do you do more in relation to that? Or is you just find those two bits of the day where you centre yourself? That, that's good enough I have to be proactive on it there are certain days I can't always achieve it yeah. and there are certain days that um, I struggle a little bit and sometimes when you are most anxious it's harder to actually yeah. focus or think you can do it and force yourself to do it but in relation to that what else is interesting from my own personal experiences I have very close family in California yeah. and uh, you know, I'm like the extended member of the family to my cousin, his wife and their three kids and when I've gone over there after a period of quite a stressful year and I haven't meditated by the way literally within a few days I'm a different person my sleep's better my stress is reduced and I'm not meditating it's literally just being in their company and just being in a different environment and, and playing yeah. with the kids and that kind of stuff so it's not sort of a daily habit like doing your exercise it's one of the things you can deploy absolutely what I find fascinating about you is I mean you're a cardiologist highly regarded profession even in medicine, cardiologists, like, you know, you're the kings and queens of the world. But actually, what you really did was take a step back from all of that to campaign for very fundamental change to the way we think about personal health and the delivery of healthcare. Tell me about the journey that got you there. I mean, you, you know, because there would have been a lot of internal pressure to stop you shaking the tree and some of the things we're about to talk about. Uh, I think first and foremost, just a bit of background. 
I wanted to do cardiology almost straight away. You know, as soon as I went to med school, I was inspired, you know, and interested in cardiology because it's a fascinating subject. Um, my grandfather died prematurely of, of a heart problem. My, my older brother had a heart condition. And also it was well known, certainly, even during my medical school days, that heart disease was the number one killer. And then jumping forward, Certainly by, let's say, you know, 2007, 2008, what I noticed was more and more pressure on the system. You know, you work busy on calls and you see what's going on. You see more and more people having issues with um, chronic disease, more and more people coming with weight related issues which all relate to the heart because these are all sort of risk factors for heart disease. But also it was a sensitivity, Tom, to um, actually providing safe care. I was working in one, I won't name the hospital, but one London hospital on call as a cardiology registrar, kind of managing everything. You know, your consultant's at home, you call him if you need him. You know, you've got junior doctors that are under your sort of guidance and, and uh, you know, you are supervising. And then you've got nurses calling you with the sickest patients that need sorting out. And I remember, you know, this was happening more and more often where I was literally getting bleeped two or three times with two or three sick patients going off. We say there's a term in medicine that this patient's going off. It means there's something happening, they're deteriorating suddenly. You've got to act quickly. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it didn't used to be like this. It wasn't like this when I qualified from Edinburgh. We had more time to manage patients. It wasn't so intense. Yeah. And when you combine that with what was going on in the population and obviously the WHO saying, you know, obesity was a, a global problem in 2004, it didn't take long for me to just look around and observe and see actually all of this is being driven by external factors. And then once I'd researched it, it didn't take long for me to work out. Obviously, it was related to, to lifestyle. And I thought to myself, well, unless I at least try to do my bit to stem the flow and improve people's quality of lives. And, you know, the, our NHS is, is going to collapse, you know. And I figured this out 2008. We're talking about 13 years ago. I knew that there was no way we are going to be able to handle this. Of course, there are issues separately, of, you know, which we can talk about, about, you know, shortages of doctors and nurses. But ultimately, we need to stem the flow. And then also, the one epiphany moment that is related to the issue of lifestyle is uh, BMJ in 2012. British Medical Journal. Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, they launched a campaign called Too Much Medicine in 2012. And, um, you know, I read the editorial and it just hit me and it was a big deal. It was like, this is their main campaign now. This is what they are going to do. And they're still doing that because they were highlighting all the problems of over-medication, problems with research, commercial influence, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, well, this all fits, you know, the imbalance. We're, we're, we're over-medicating people while simultaneously not addressing lifestyle. These two things almost on their own explain most of what's wrong with our healthcare system. But it also then helps us you know, help me understand what needs to be done to resolve it. And I suppose in many ways, that's really what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And, and one of the things, uh, you know, there was a story I, I tell again and again and again about a patient coming with a heart attack in his 50s. We treated him and he was fine. We saved him and the next morning on the ward round, advising him to take his pills. And then also about healthy lifestyle, stop smoking and he gets served a burger and chips. And, yeah. you know, he looks at me and says, Doc, how do you expect to change your lifestyle if you're serving me the same crap that brought me here in the first place? So that was another kind of made me think, hold on a minute. And I could see as well, Tom, that the kind of food served in hospitals, what was available to, to staff, wasn't very nutritious. There was a lot of junk food and people being completely oblivious to making the link between what they were eating. As I'm talking about doctors and, you know, nurses here, making absolutely, almost no link between what they're eating and everything else that's going wrong with the healthcare system around them. And I made that link quite quickly. And that's where you felt that 
you wanted to do things at scale, you could you had the skill set to make people well when they were acutely ill, but actually what you needed to do was re-engineer the system. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, how do you go from being a jobbing doctor and just having those observations, which I'm sure a lot of doctors do have, to actually then becoming the sort of campaigner? And actually, I was quite inspired by watching Jamie Oliver, you know, trying to improve school dinners. Yeah. It was initially a little bit, I wouldn't say selfish reasons, but, you know, how great would it be for morale, for me, even people working in hospital, if we, were, we had access to good nutritious food? I actually thought yeah. it, would, it would just make the, you know, the whole thing more enjoyable because it's busy. We work in hospital and, you know, people are often eating fast food and whatever else. So I actually just one afternoon, I wrote an email. Uh, I managed to get the email address of Jamie Oliver's, I think, his PA. And then I got, re- you know, I just said who I was. And I think Jamie's great and what he's been, can he do something about hospital food? It'd be amazing. And, uh, and, and you know, to my surprise, about six weeks later, I got a reply saying, Jamie would be thrilled to meet you, come and have dinner at his office. And he'd organised then a few months later with a group of doctors, a discussion around the whole obesity problem. And that is when I met... Um, uh, a chap called Professor Terence Stevenson, who was then the chair of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. Yeah. He said, we want to do, doctors want to make a statement and do something about what needs to be done to tackle Britain's obesity epidemic. And I was invited on that kind of group or committee as a junior doctor. And then, you know, things then just spiralled in terms of my knowledge increased and, you know, speaking to people high up and understanding what was really going on, um, you know, and, and things just went off from there. Okay, I can see the journey. I mean... You actually practice what you preach. You've explained how you've ended up here. Let's just talk about your latest book, because actually you've had some pushback on this from people who say you're actually offering too much to people because the latest book says you can start to make a real impact on improving your metabolic health in 21 days. Explain to me why that is and why that's so important now. I mean, it's going to be obvious to people, I guess, but just explain it. So, Tom, I think, you know, early on when we went into the first lockdown, I was reading papers and data that was rapidly coming out of China about what were the risk factors associated with increased mortality and death rates from COVID. And it was quite clear to me that actually they were all related to lifestyle and diet and, you know, people having conditions like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. And the root of it is what we call metabolic health, which in simple terms is a point at which the excess body fat for you starts to increase your risk for for many of these conditions. But what I also already knew is that the combination of risk factors, if you like, something called metabolic syndrome, related to having three of five abnormalities of blood pressure and and glucose metabolism and and, um, triglycerides, HDL waist circumference, you can reverse that in up to about 50% of people can can reverse that going from the highest risk to a lower risk within just 21 to 28 days of pure dietary changes. So having that awareness was something I started to think, well, hold on a minute, there's a bit missing from this public health messaging here because obviously, you know, everyone knows and we still got the, you know, from the Prime Minister coming out and saying, you know, uh, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. And I thought, well, hold on a minute, where's the bit about eating real food, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, there are going to be limitations depending on who you are and, and what you can do. But at the very least, you know, get the public health messaging right. So people do feel they're empowered and feel there is something they can do to make them more robust if and when they're unlucky enough to catch the virus. So I, I, the book was written actually after I'd already, you know, I'd gone on Sky News and I'd written something for The Express and then I wrote an article in The European Scientist and in The Telegraph after I had also been quite public um, and saying that I had made the link between why Boris got particularly well and went to hospital with his weight and, and, and COVID. So once that happened, you know, my publisher 
called me up and actually I was in the, I was supposed to be writing another book and she said can you stop what you're doing you're saying we've seen you've been very prominent about this can you manage to turn over a book just because we need to get it out as quickly as possible within six weeks on this link between diet lifestyle and COVID and I said absolutely so that's basically how that came about I think some of the pushback Tom that's there is really I don't think it's malicious but actually I think most of that pushback um, initially was just pure lack of knowledge. Yeah. So I think people don't realise that most doctors know very little about nutrition, partly because we're not taught about it in medical school. Yeah. And also whatever they do know is flawed and outdated. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really bad combination. It's about, you know, eat less, move more, healthy weight. That's it. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to tell patients. So they're not aware of all of this, you know, how it links to chronic disease, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's probably where some of the pushback has come. But you know, on a positive side, I think I had much less pushback and a lot, you know, and, and good support, obviously, in this book than I did with the Piopi diet. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At the sort of very heart of this debate, when you get to people trying to turn their health around, you soon get to the point where there is disagreement about the balance of macronutrients we put in ourselves right but let's just before we get to to ironing out where that difference is i think the one thing that unites everyone whatever diet wherever you stand on this is that there is too much sucrose in the system we live in a sugar economy absolutely and so the unifying theory of everything is let's reduce sugar in our daily diets right now there might be a row about you know whether you do that through sugar taxes or better labeling or in fact all of those in my view we need to look at but then we get to a point where there is actually a fundamental disagreement with public health england who are very very prescriptive in what they say the balance between carbohydrates fats and protein should be and at the heart of the debate is there's just a load of people out there who feel better like me rid themselves of diabetes by not having as many carbs in their diet as Public Health England say is healthy. Now, the lesson I get from that is you cannot have one-size-fits-all nutritional advice to the populace anymore. You know, we've got to work a lot harder because people's bodies are different. But actually, there's an even harder position, which is um, Public Health England advice is just saying there's too many carbs. Have I got the argument right like that? Yes, Tom, I think you have, absolutely. And you you rest very heavily on a lot of research papers in the last 10 years that have really looked very deeply at this, isn't it? There's a lot of flawed research that essentially, when they talk about low-carb diets, 
not having a particular impact. It's actually high-carb diets but aren't as high as everything else. I mean, low-carb for me would be either full ketogenic diet, 20 grams or less of carbs. I can't remember what POP is. I mean, it depends. There's a bit of variation POP, but the actual overall broad term for for, um, for low-carb, Tom, actually starts at less than 40% of your total calories. Yeah, it's percentage-wise, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, yeah. for keto, usually less than 50 or 25 grams of carbs, yeah. Half of us with type 2 diabetes can reverse their condition with dietary change. Yeah. And most of that is low-carb, right? Absolutely. I mean, I know you can never do policy based on anecdotes. Yeah. But I've met hundreds, if not thousands, of people now who've done POP or, you know, reduced carbs from their diet and got a slightly different balance, and they just feel better. Yeah. They reduce their meds, their blood pressure comes down, they feel calmer, they're happier. They do, you know, there's a whole load of things that happen to them. Yeah. How do we help Matt Hancock give those two million people their, their lives back? You're right, you know, in terms of if we're going to you know, talk about good science and we have to look at the totality of all the evidence and we also have to look at you know, sources of bias and unfortunately a lot of the, what most people aren't aware of is that we have you know, an imbalance where a lot of the information, a lot of the guidelines are all being influenced by corporate interests, not by the totality of evidence science. So people are making their decisions, if you like, their health decisions or doctors are making clinical decisions on, on biased information. Yeah doesn't take a rocket science to work out that that is not going to give your patient or give the public the the best outcomes if you're using that information so i agree with you about sugar you know i've shifted a little bit more towards talking about ultra processed food because even though you're right i think all of us will have slight differences in how we respond to certain foods on a personal level you know different cultures different ethnicities different you know food preferences if you think about you know this whole issue about obesity and diet-related disease, it's predominantly started, you know, after the 1980s. So if you look back, you know, pictures of people on Brighton Beach or whatever else, there's almost nothing there. And, I, and the biggest change has been the amount and the types of foods that we are consuming that encourage overconsumption. So when we talk about ultra-processed food, it isn't your burger and chips and your fast food and your takeaways. It's basically all the packaged food that you eat that has five or more ingredients, usually full of starch, sugar, uh, preservatives, additives, in fact, 70% of the, uh, of the sugar people consume in this country comes from these sorts of foods, at least 70%. Yeah. So that's where it's coming from. And that is now half of the British diet. And actually, that would be a good focus, I think, for the government, for everybody, where we could probably get a consensus because the, the, the evidence is showing pretty consistently on dozens of studies now that all of these sorts of foods are associated, certainly not just with obesity, but many diseases, yeah. even irrespective of calories. I think that would then, you know, help a policy level and an individual level. That's a good place to start. And then, of course, I think these sort of these dietary, you know, science and nutrition science about what the best diet is. I think that's going to carry on evolving and more and more studies will be done, hopefully more rigorously to compare different types of diets. For example, what's the best diet to manage type 2 diabetes or what's the best diet to manage heart disease? Certainly with type 2 diabetes, as you've touched on, Tom, there are two approaches, actually. You can go low carb, Right. Or you can go ultra low calorie, yeah. which is basically 800 calories a day for three months, which, you know, I don't know about you, but I mean, I tried it. I mean, just to see what it was like, I couldn't last more than three days, mate, to be honest. So I, I don't know, you know, the, the amount of people that manage it. And of course, some people claim that, they, you know, some people have reversed their type 2 diabetes by doing this. But it's actually a very small proportion of people who are able to manage past, you know, 48 hours 
And then of that, you know, that percentage of people is then, you know, uh, can do it for three months, can actually send them into remission. So I think those options should be available. The problem we've got at the moment is this low-carb approach is not part of routine practice. GPs at the moment, you know, uh, are basically being told that the way to send your patients type 2 diabetes into remission is to give them, you know, some sort of commercial product, which is basically uh, a soup or a shake of 800 calories per day for the next three months. I had a lovely exchange of letters with my GP, who's a, he's my hero. And when I actually came off my meds and uh, got my bloods in the right order, you know, you can say I reverse type 2, he gave me a hug. He said I was his favourite patient. I'm sure he says that to all his patients, by the way. But um, we had an exchange where I was considering ultra-low calorie before I found your book, actually. And in the end, I decided I probably, you know, I'm pretty disciplined when I need to be. But how would you go on to maintenance? You know, you come out of three months of 800 calories. You know, what does your fridge look like after you've been drinking those little drinks for three months? So I could see why people would want to do it as like a turbo boost. But actually, it's not a lasting solution, is it? No, and also there there are a few contraindications in terms of elderly people aren't recommended to do it. It also doesn't address the fact we've got um, a lot of people with type 2 diabetes who are either just slightly overweight or even normal weight, you see. Yeah. Uh, and you know that third, it doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for for those people either. So no. you know, listen, if this approach, low carb, pop, whatever, doesn't work, I would always tell my patients, listen, let's try something else, or a different way yeah. of doing it. But I think the initial default should be eating real food, yeah, you know, which is enjoyable and it's nutritious and uh, you know something that doesn't involve you needing to count calories. I mean, I basically lived on microwave meals for twenty years. Right, I was a busy guy, busy and lazy you know, too lazy to think about what I needed to put in the shopping basket. But these days, I, I, I know this is like a greater push to look at the calorific value of things. But the two things I want to know most are what oils are in the products and what sugars are in the products. And, you know, like when you buy a lunch deal in Marks & Spencer, there's demerara sugar on the, on the cooked chicken, right? You don't have to cook chicken with demerara sugar, do you? I mean, I'm sure they'll say it's to do with you know, sell-by dates and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing to stop the government now giving people more power in their hands. Even if you're just saying this is about choice, they're not getting the right choices because they're not given the information to make those choices, right? Absolutely. No one would disagree with this, would they? I mean, anyone who's looking at who's reform-minded, I mean, food producers would maybe because it's more onerous to them but yeah there's no one else sensible that would think this isn't a bad idea no i don't think so tom i think as long as people understand that we have those discussions about what does personal responsibility mean what does knowledge and choice mean accessibility i think it's very difficult when to argue against some people when come say well people know what they're eating and they choose to eat junk well actually hold on a minute you know we've been talking about brown bread in the supermarket you know if you look at public health england's eat well guide um a lot of the foods that are on there you know, forget about the bit of junk food they've stuck on there because the food industry are involved in the discussions about what goes on this eat well plate. Even the stuff on the plate, if you look at a lot of those foods, they are ultra processed foods in the, in the modern day. They're not the same sorts of foods that people were eating 40, yeah. 50 years ago. You know, the type of bread people are eating now is completely different to what our grandparents, for example, would eat. Yeah. So I think this is not part of the discussion. And that's partly based upon, again, this outdated focusing on calories rather than where the calories come from and what they are going to be doing, you know, in combination in these packaged foods to your hormones, to your gut microbiome, to your appetite, all of that sorts of stuff that is, is clearly a much bigger issue than just calories alone. We're getting the manifesto written here. We're getting rid of sugar. 
I think we both agree on better labelling. I think we know there needs to be public information on preparing real food, not processed food. There's a good rule in there. Yeah. That's not a bad six-month campaign for the Secretary of State. Is there anything else we can do to help that? I think the marketing, the banning of the ultra-processed food advertising in particular, Tom, as well, because we know, for example, 2017, you know, the food industry spent something like £143 million on marketing sort of confectionery, sugary drinks and chocolates, for example, which was 27 times more than the government spent on health eating campaigns. Yeah. Now, we can argue about what the health eating campaigns are actually arguing for in terms of healthy food, but still, just giving you an example, the balance is very much against the general public in that respect. Yeah. So I think that it's, um, you know, uh, that needs to be addressed because a lot of the most vulnerable groups of society, children in particular as well, are the most vulnerable, you know, to these sorts of messages and they need to be protected. I mean, we would both agree that you can't outrun a bad diet, right? And there's hardly any point in doing more exercise if you can't sort your nutrition out. What is the balance in your mind about how you get people more active? Because for me, I can now understand that taking sugar out of my diet and getting my blood sugar levels was essentially the nutritional inputs. But I started to feel... Like I just had a little bit more energy because of that. Yeah. And I managed to use that energy to do more physical activity that grew and grew and grew. Yeah. And, you know, you still have setbacks on that. But where should public policy at a national level be? Matt Hancock was very cleverly benchmarking ideas of social prescribing, for example. But, I mean, would you go as far as giving GPs the ability to deploy, you know, personal trainers rather than medicalise and things like that? Would that have an impact or is that further down the priority list? Yeah, I think uh, it's a good question, Tom. I think I've got nothing against personal trainers at all. I think it's about what is going to give you the best value for money. And personal trainers are not cheap. Yeah. Uh, and on a mass scale, that's going to be very difficult, I think, to implement. But of course, some people are going to need more specialised input. Yeah, I think the messaging, first and foremost, should you know be very clear that exercise for physical and mental health—that's a very strong message. Yeah, exercise is great for your physical and mental health. Yeah, what you eat is going to be the biggest determinant of your weight, right? So I think that's that. Those are sort of the two sort of they can be complementary to each other, if you like. Yeah, as you probably well know, for years, you know, there are companies, food companies, had used exercise to distract from it being food there you know people a lot of people believed it was all lack of exercise we now know that it's it's close to you know zero impact when it comes to weight it's, it's pretty much everything you eat so i think um you know that that messaging has to be clear and it hasn't hasn't it's better than it was for sure um you know boris johnson came out with his uh, you know initial sort of report on the obesity plan and one of the most prominent things he talks about this cycling revolution to combat obesity well that's just false it's wrong you know i said uh, in the i newspaper it's deliberate deception i in my view actually i think he's just pandering to the food industry by saying that listen i love cycling like anybody else really but again physical mental health concentrate on the food yeah. so i think that will help change those policies more quickly in the right way when it comes to food. That's why I think that's important. I guess that's why I'm probing you a little bit on this, because actually we do... I mean, we could say Coca-Cola, their their global strategy yeah. was basically to make the, the health debate about uh, about exercise. Oh, they even funded research. 40% of the research they funded or whatever was was just specifically yeah. to look at... to push well, that a, message. There was a fabulous octogenarian nutritional scientist called Marion Nessel, who I had the honour of meeting when she came to the UK. And Marion told me that Coca-Cola spend $100 million 
on lobbying against measures that will reduce sugar in our diets. And even though the government have got a very hard recommendation of the amount of sucrose you put in your body each day, they still said a product, Classic Coke, which has got more than the recommended daily allowance. I mean, you you know, I still can't understand how that's allowed. You know, to have your RDA, you basically have to drink 80% of the can or something. No one does that, do they? There's a failure of regulation here. Uh, you know, if, if people want to read actually about the history of, of, of really the corporate influence on public health, there's a book which I read recently, which I very strongly recommend, which is called The Bottom Line or Public Health, Tactics Corporations Use to Influence Health and Health Policy and What We Can Do to Counter Them. It's written by a, a professor in America, public health policy called William Wist. It's brilliant. I'll definitely get that. Uh, and that explains the history, even going back into the American Constitution, you know, early on. And, and actually, um, you know, some of the earlier presidents had actually put out, you know, very strong policies saying that we have to protect the public, wait for it, from the tyranny of corporations. <laughs> and then things changed, right? Yeah. So there's a history about this that goes back many, many years. And what's happened is, unfortunately, the law is also stacked against us in the sense that if people understood the roots of it or actually what the regulations were, in a true democracy, the majority of the public would find it unacceptable. They just don't know about it. So one thing we could give Matt Hancock is the idea that he could set up uh, an independent research and development fund for nutritional science. So they don't have to do corporation partnerships. They could do their own pure science on its own objectives because there's a definite public interest in the independence of that research, right? That, that's, that, that would be easy to do. Absolutely. And I think from that as well, they would also be able to hopefully look into and see actually where are the failures happening in the regulatory system yeah. that allow this sort of thing, as you said. You know, 2013, I wrote this uh, piece in the BMJ called The Dietary Advice on Sugar is in Need of Emergency Surgery. And I did my own investigation. And what I found was that the labelling across Europe on sugar consumption was advising consumers through the labelling that they should be, not a limit, they should be having 22 and a half teaspoons of sugar a day as part of their guideline daily amount, right? And when I went to the roots of it, I'd worked out or found out and spoken to people that this is all influenced ultimately by the sugar industry. Of course it is. So, you know, these things need to be properly scrutinised. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's only in hindsight do I realise that there's a big mental game for me to get into a place where I needed to really fundamentally change my life. The behavioural science understanding of that has grown. And one of the things I sort of mused on in my book, Downsizing, was giving GPs the ability to prescribe continuous glucose monitors for a temporary period. So when I presented to my doctor sort of 15 years before I had high blood pressure as being overweight or obese... Had there been a CGM then, one of the little patches that measures your blood sugar in real time, for those that don't follow this um, in detail, if I'd have had one of those for a week or two, I'd have been able to understand what the sugar spike literally looks like on my phone 
when I drink that bottle of Coca-Cola on a Saturday morning, having been to the pub and drunk beer and had a curry on a Friday night. And that technology just wasn't, you know, ubiquitous enough or reliable enough a decade ago for us to even be able to have a discussion about the merits or demerits of using those tools. What that essentially gives GPs is an earlier intervention in obesity before it gets very serious. Now, there's obviously a cost there, but I'm sure it could certainly be road-tested. Do you think that would help in the challenge on obesity? Yeah. But I don't know whether the technology is good enough yet. I think technology is very good, and I think for individual behaviour change, it can absolutely be a very helpful tool. Yeah. But I think overall... In terms of the um, biggest impact on population health and individuals, I think it's just going to be a better education about high glycemic index carbohydrates, about you know making the, the food environment better, uh, and, and then breaking the addiction to these ultra-processed foods. Because often yeah. it's an addiction, isn't it? I think that you've obviously gone through this yourself, but probably looking back now, that cycle, that pattern, you're in these sorts of foods you're eating in a way, in a way kind of hijacked your appetite control mechanisms, your brain. It was a, something you were used to and, and probably addicted to, if I'm not, you know, probably right. No, I'm sure I, I describe myself as a sugar addict. Yeah. But once yeah. you break that addiction, those cravings um, disappear or become much less frequent or, you know, if you do then fall off the wagon for, for a day or whatever or, you know, even for one, you know, sugary treat, it's not the same as it used to be. You get back on the, uh, the right track again. It's often said there are four pillars of good health. Exercise, nutrition, well-being and sleep. And I've been very influenced by the work of um, Sachin Panda and Matthew Walker. Uh, Matthew Walker is, is not just a great research scientist, I think he's also a, a great communicator. And I, I've considerably changed how I do sleep. Uh, I get more of it. And it's a lot easier now, I'm not a politician, but it seems to me, if you look at the figures, where in the 1940s, one in 12 people was getting less than six hours sleep a night. You know, a couple of years ago, half the nation was getting less than six hours sleep a night. And our average sleep is coming down. And yet the goal is to attempt to get eight hours sleep a night and certainly get over six. seems to me what... Matthew Hancock really should do is develop a national sleep strategy that looks at noise pollution, shift patterns, building regs about how you keep rooms dark, or all the sort of things that we've done in our individual lives at scale. What kind of an impact do you think that would have, given the research base that you're drawing down on? Absolutely massive, Tom. Absolutely massive. I'm glad you've raised this. I, I didn't know about the one in 12, 1940s, so I've learned something interesting and new today as well. That's you know, oh, God, great. <laughs> that's fascinating, actually. And even they say half of people getting less than six hours. Now, I think that the impact of sleep is massive on health, on, on everything, and it's all linked to stress as well. But I think what might also be, and I'm kind of maybe pushing things a little bit here, but you know, I think this is where things are going to involve. You talk about investing in well-being. I think there's a lot of interesting research, Tom, related to this, because one of the reasons people don't sleep as much is often to do with, of course, lockdowns is an anomaly. So let's just take lockdown out of the equation for a second. But I think a lot of it is related to the amount of hours people are spending working, yeah. which is quite extensive, yeah. certainly in the modern day, you know, depending which country you're in, but people do work very long hours, very hard. And I can't, you know, I won't be able to give the exact figure, but I, I remember reading a paper which suggested that in terms of maximum productivity in a week, it stops at about 30 to 35 hours per person. Yeah. So the question then is, 
you know, if we're going to be doing that as well, why don't we also think about actually making people's working lives better and giving people a bit more time off for their well-being, you know? So if I had a magic wand or if I was prime minister, one of the things I would campaign for, whatever else, that would be, let's have a three-day weekend. Why not? Why yeah. not have a three-day weekend? Yeah, okay, that's clever, that's clever. <laughs> but but uh, I think this is all linked to the sleep issue as well, isn't it? You yeah. know? So I agree I'm, with you completely on the sleep issue, but I also think overall in well-being, the way we work, I think, can change and should change. For me, I can't help think that, because I, I, my sleep was terrible when I was an MP, and young MP in particular. I mean, you know, like three or four hours a night sometimes. It's all self-inflicted, but I didn't realise it. In, you know, blood glucose management, you know, your insulin resistance goes up. You, Absolutely. You, your, your hormone for hunger goes up. Your hormone for satiety goes down if you lose your sleep. I mean, you Markers basically... Markers of inflammation, absolutely. It just is... It, the, the impact is dramatic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think there is also, you know, linked to that, Tom, as well, is probably some impact on the more increasing prevalence of, of conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah, sleep deprivation. You know, yeah. I know this is purely anecdotal, but we know obviously yeah. former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher developed, you know, uh, dementia. Yeah. And she was well known to say that she averaged four hours of sleep a night. Yeah. I mean, because it was all... It's, I mean, I remember it in the 80s, you know, you, it was a sort of badge of honour if, if, to not sleep, wasn't it? Which, I mean, you think about it now. Yeah. I mean, why would you sort of want to do that if you don't have to? Absolutely. Look, Asim, I... I, I you're so interested, and I, I'm so glad you're getting through lockdown. I'm glad you're keeping your routines. You know, people don't know this, but you have really helped me over the years. You've given me encouragement, and, um, you know, you've given me the confidence to go out and take on some of the issues that you've been campaigning for for many years and given me that kind of research understanding. So I'm grateful for your time. It's really appreciated. Absolute pleasure, Tom. Likewise. And I think, you know, this ultimately is going to be a collective team effort in, in helping people live healthier and happier lives. I think we all want that. So it's just about getting the, you know, having the willpower to, to offer people and, and uh, the right solutions. Well, we've got a lot there. I, I, I might even write it all up and send a letter to Matt Hancock. He's, he, does, he does respond. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, mate. All right, mate. All the best. Take care. That was Dr. Asim Mulhotra who really has the blueprint to address the nation's metabolic health at scale. My next episode is only in a couple of days' time and was an interview that took place a few days ago after the tragic murder of Sarah Everard. I'm speaking to Michael Conroy, who runs an organisation called Men at Work, which works with young men to talk about the issue of power and violence and coercion, misogyny and sexism, and tries to help teenage boys enter the world where they know what a healthy, rewarding relationship looks like and how they can contribute to stopping male violence against women. It seems very topical and it's a fascinating interview with someone who has spent their adult working life contributing to this area of public policy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullin. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Pod Monkey. The music is by Tom Gray. <laughs>